0: From the courtroom to the tabloids, welcome to All Rise, the podcast that lets you be the jury. We will discuss and debate provocative celebrity news stories, court cases, political controversies, crime, and other hot topics of the day. With on-the-scene
1: correspondence, officials directly related to the issue, and a panel of guests that will leave no evidence to the imagination, All Rise swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the
0: truth. Your host... Dylan Howard
1: Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, why are celebrities turning to suicide and how can you spot suicide warning signs? An all-rise exclusive, Dr. Drew Pinsky will be here to break down the tragic and heartbreaking news of two suicides from rich and famous plus an all rise exclusive as the new gotti movie with john travolta premieres at the box office a world exclusive the former gambino family crime boss john gotti jr is here to reveal how he plans to exact revenge on the marked men on his new hit list including mutts like Mob Turncoat, Sammy the Bull Gravano. It's an interview you won't want to miss. Talent and tragedy. Two beloved icons separately end their lives amid drastic questions about depression, despair, and why they choose to commit suicide. Joining me on the line is Dr. Drew Pinsky. Dr. Drew Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade's suicides have catapulted the notion of suicide into the headlines. And many people are asking why celebrities turn to suicide. Why?
2: Yeah, and you're asking actually a rather complicated question, Dylan. And the I would caution people from looking uh, upon suicide as one phenomenon. In other words, each of these cases, though they end in suicide are very very different if you compare Chester Bennington to Kate Spade to Anthony Bourdain it's these are not some monolithic depression that they all suffered from Anthony Bourdain had a history of heroin addiction and was continuing to drink those guys are at very high risk of suicide Kate Spade recurrent depression suicidality Chester Bennington a recovering guy doing very well but with this recalcitrant suicidality they're all very different situations but what people have trouble getting their head around is the idea that a celebrity, somebody whom they admire, somebody who seems to have everything, would even be depressed. And that, in, in its core, is sort of a misunderstanding of what depression is and how it works, and the fact that this is an illness. And just like everybody else, celebrities are no different than anybody else. They have brains, and those brains get conditions, addiction, depression, these sorts of phenomenon that we are all uh, subject to. They are as well, and in fact, Ellen, I actually have the only published data on celebrities because I know so many of them. Over the years, I was able to do, we actually published some data on them. I think you and I have talked about this before. Uh, They have higher levels of narcissism and higher levels of childhood injuries, uh, narcissistic injuries, adverse childhood experiences, and higher incidence of addiction and alcoholism than the average population. So not only are they the same as the rest of us, they actually come to their celebrity with a little more liability than the rest of us.
1: So let's look at Anthony Bourdain. If we dig a little bit deeper into his personal circumstance, this man was admired by so many and was a brilliant storyteller and seemingly had the world at his feet. He was outspoken and people appreciated and admired that. But you mentioned earlier that he was a heroin addict who continued to drink. Why does that place somebody at being more susceptible to suicide?
2: it really is the disease of addiction. And, you know, again, we can argue, people argue the details about this, but in its broadest stroke, once someone has triggered that condition by by getting addicted to heroin, you are forever in the throes of that disease. And if you are not doing something active to manage it, you are contributing to progression. And if you're exposing yourself to a substance that continues to that say, tickle that region of the brain that we associate with the motivational disturbance of addiction, you will get disturbances of motivation. You will get uh, sort of choices and decisions and thinking that ends up being part of the disease. Thinking like, damn, I can't sleep. I better see the doctor and get some medicine for that. Damn, um, I just broke up with my girlfriend. I can't tolerate that. I need to drink a little more. These are all distorted thoughts, and they are all the result of that disease we call addiction. And so it destabilizes that individual, not to mention the fact that they're constantly at risk for escalating their substance, getting the pills, or maybe going back to their drug of choice. Insofar as they're not managing that disease, they are actively at risk of it recurring.
1: If you look at Kate Spade, there has been much speculation about the disintegration of her marriage to her husband, and that that contributed to her depression. How important is it for people to look upon the situations of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade and understand that there is help?
2: Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. And that's and and if anything, that's the one thing that celebrity has a liability attached to mm. that the rest of us don't. Now, let me explain it this way: that celebrity, oftentimes with you know depression, addiction, these sorts of mental health issues. There's a certain amount of denial associated with it. And if you are surrounded by people telling you, you're great, you're fine, and you have a small chorus of people saying, hey, man, you better take care of yourself, you can dismiss those people and keep insulated by the sycophants and continue on your way. And also, work tends to be a very significant liability for celebrities in that they're very turned on by their work. They make a lot of money for themselves and other people. And so in my world, when I've treated celebrities, one of the greatest liabilities is they're just... They're, seeing, they're always their insistence on returning to work prematurely, and that doesn't work. I mean, look at Robert Downey Jr. Remember mm-hmm. his multiple attempts at recovery failed because he kept going back to work, going back to work, going back to work, and not focusing on his treatment. So you know, treatment works when you do it. The other, yes. the other important thing is that uh, it seems like a lot of these stories include sort of isolation, and not either either pulling back from healthy people or insulating yourself with sycophants or just actually isolating yourself. I think the story of Kate sounded like she was sort of isolating. Hmm. That's, That's somebody who's in trouble. It's reaching out. It's other people. That's the solution. And if you see somebody isolating, please reach out to them. And if you are isolating, don't do that.
1: So as much as celebrity can be a liability to some extent when it comes to suicide, there are also examples which I think are important to point out. Examples of celebrities that attempted suicide, survived, and have gone on to build tremendous lives for themselves. Elton John tried to kill himself in the early 1970s when he was struggling with his homosexuality. Drew Carey tried to take his life twice at age 18 by overdosing on pills. Owen Wilson slit his wrists And Tina Turner once took 50 Valium tablets to escape her physically abusive marriage to her ex-husband. In many ways, though, their stories, Dr. Drew, need to be told so people can understand that you can recover.
2: 100% true, Dylan. And and I'm so pleased you, you frame it that way because the press rarely reports the successes, right? That's not the way we consume news. We go from tragedy to tragedy or outrage to outrage. And this is its a great example of the fact that these things do get better. And that is, that is again, category, essentially categorically true of suicidality. If you can get through that moment, those feelings pass. They, I mean, Chester Bennington, I would say, is an example of mm. someone who struggled chronically with recurrent problems with this. That's unusual. Most people, they're in sort of a crisis. This is sort of a bottom for them. If they don't take this permanent solution to a temporary problem and reach out and are around people or put in a hospital or whatever it might be to keep them safe, it passes. And they wonder why they were thinking that way. And, you know, we are in a bit of an epidemic of suicide. Uh, We've seen an increase in Caucasian middle-aged men. And, um, you know, most of us thought that was the result of the economic climate and, of course, the opioid epidemic. And I think that is the case. But now we're starting to see an increase in young females. not only just young females, but the means that they are taking, we associate with young males, hanging and, and guns. And hanging and guns are usually associated with impulsive senses of absolute despair. I'm not worth it. The world is better off without me. My children will be relieved if I'm not around. And I can't tolerate this pain another second. Boom, done. And then guess what? If we could have just been there and been around that person or held them somewhere for maybe a day, all of it would have passed.
1: Mm. You know, it's a tragic topic. And I think everybody deals with their own personal demons at any given point. And it's tragic to think that people don't necessarily get the support and comfort that they need and turn to suicide. And of course, it's heartbreaking. And what's important for the media is not to glamorize suicide, but to put it into context. And I don't think that that context that is necessary has been given the headlines in the last couple of weeks.
2: 100%. It, it's a nuanced process. I See, I don't see I, – I think – when I look at these these stories that have been in the press, I see suicide as the outcome. I yeah. see it as a symptom, but I see each of these cases as complex and different, and that's the way you ought to think about it. These are Suicide is a symptom of that case and, the, unfortunately, the terminal symptom. But it's not the totality of the situation. These are complicated, and and you know the really t- t- tragic part always, Dylan, is it takes the, the the rich. Now I don't mean rich wealth. I mean rich human beings, yeah. the people that have a lot to offer and are sensitive and have given so much, and and that's that's the part that kills me. That's what kills me about addiction. It kills me about many times suicide, which is that This is a common liability of being a human. We have a brain, it gets sick the way our heart or our pancreas gets sick. And unfortunately, because of stigma and denial and treating the brain different than other parts of the body, it's easier for people to avoid treatment. And then if you add celebrity to that where they're sort of insulated, they don't have an employer necessarily because they're independent contractors. They have sycophants perhaps around them. Now you have a recipe for trouble. Yeah.
1: You know, I remember throughout my two decades as a journalist when there are stories that involve suicide, typically it was almost viewed as taboo that we wouldn't cover something if it was a suicide for fear of glamorizing it. I think the discussion that you and I are having here is what needs to take place. It certainly has taken place on your shows. And I appreciate that this is a discussion that you can have. And I appreciate you joining us on the podcast.
2: My privilege, my friend, anytime.
1: Thank you, Dr. Drew. Cheers. Dr. Drew Pinsky. You can find him all over the web. He has his own podcast. It's great to talk to my good friend, Dr. Drew. And remember that if you're listening to this podcast and you know someone who perhaps is considering suicide, help exists. They can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. A short break and coming up, the interview you've all been waiting for. John Gotti Jr. and the new underworld war that has broken out on our streets. It's an All Rise exclusive, next. For four decades, the name Gotti has been synonymous with organised crime. The American people were told stories about them with varying degrees of accuracy. But now for the first time, at least one version of the real story of the Gotti family is being told. It is in cinemas now with John Travolta as the megastar John Gotti. And now we have an All Rise exclusive. John Gotti Jr. survived four trials and a parole violation hearing in just four years without one guilty verdict. Now he's telling his story to me. His unwavering support to his father and the new fight he's embarking on after leaving a life of crime. I began my interview by asking John Gotti Jr. what life is like today as a notorious crime figure.
0: Today I'm basically the same individual that I was most of my life. I'd like to believe that I'm a loyal son. I'd like to believe I'm a good husband. Could be a hell of a lot better. I know I'm a good father, that I do know. I'm a good friend to my friends. I'm a good brother to my siblings. They'll all tell you I'm loyal to a fault. Today, when I look back at what I was and where I am today, uh, I'm a different individual. I'm a different individual because I was always in the streets all your life. And now I'm put into a position whereas that once I've come home, uh, hopefully home finally and for good, uh, December 1st, 2009, That I'm now at this point going to be able to stay home with my family. I'm a writer. I'm a legitimate guy that every day he gets up, he goes to his office. First of all, before I go to my office, I see my kids in the morning. It's a normal routine. If you put a camera in my house, you'd see nothing different than, uh, you're not going to see Ozzy and, uh, you know, Ozzy and Nelson, Ozzy and Harriet, but you're going to see normal. Kids running around, getting their clothes together. My son Johnny coming in, getting ready to go to gym and train, he's an MMA fighter. My wife scurrying around to get things organized and screaming because my son Joe didn't do his homework the previous night. All of those things are happening and there I am, sitting on a couch with my bathrobe on, having an espresso in an Atkins bar, watching the news. Once they're gone, it's my time to get dressed and leave the house. I go to the office and I write. And I'm trying to create projects to feed my family Pay those real estate taxes, those hefty real estate taxes, North Star Bay Cove, Long Island. Uh, pay the mortgage. And You know, when I first had come home, my house was in foreclosure, so I had basically I had to reinvent myself uh, through my writings, and I was able to get myself uh, on a more fi- sound financial footing. Whereas getting the house out of foreclosure, paying all back bills, I've paid probably well over seven hundred thousand in back taxes. Uh, to get myself back on par today so i'd like to believe today i'm a guy that just goes to work and tries to support his family the best he can
1: now it's interesting that you mentioned in the last passage that you quoted your loyalty to my father now your father remains perhaps the most powerful crime figure certainly the most notorious figure in the american underworld and although he passed away in 2002 when he was age 61 i wanted to ask you What is loyalty to someone who is dead? And is taking down the turncoats part of this loyalty? Here's what you see. I've seen all too often you have,
0: for example, in the last three weeks, I've watched four different documentaries. The main focal point was my father. And for the most part, not very flattering. If you want the image of a tough guy, uh, an intelligent guy, yeah, it's there. But everything else is not very flattering. And usually what you have more times than not is you have adversarial individuals. You'll have an agent, law enforcement. You'll have a government cooperator. They're all weighing in and giving their opinion. And then you have individuals from the press. That's what you see today, okay? Loyal to my father, to me now today in his death, is taking the position of stepping up and defending him. Having the ability to say, look, I'm not an idiot. I don't sit in the corner and drool all over myself. I love this man, I observed this man, I knew him better than any other individual, aside from my mother. Aside from my mother, she slept with him, I didn't. But I've watched him, I studied him, I idolized him my whole life. So I know his pros and his cons, and his pros certainly outweighed his cons, okay? And being loyal to him is having the ability to express that today and defend him. To, to now put together a show, we, I did an interview for a and E, a a documentary, Godfather and Son, and to be able to have the the opportunity to express who this man was. As I had done in Shadow of My Father, my book, that's being loyal to my father, having the ability here and now today to defend him when he's not here to defend himself. And even if he was here to defend himself, my father's not gonna sit there and get into a debate. We live in what's called a fecky world. Today you have all these people that come out and they go on internet now and they, they creep out of their closet late at night you hear the doors opening up, they come out and they get on there. And they get all these tough guys, all these government cooperators, these tough guys, these mutts. They all come out and they start the attack. They attack John Gotti, they'll attack me, his wife, his daughters. Being a good son, being a loyal son in his death is me picking up his sword and moving forward and defending him and his family.
1: Is there an argument to be made that the Witness Protection Program is nothing but a corrupt organ of law enforcement?
0: I don't think that the Witness Protection Program has its flaws. And Congress knows this, because Congress has been trying to address this for many years. But you would have to start from the very beginning, the process. The process starts with the first time a individual wants to become a cooperator, he goes into a meeting, which is called a proffer session. Okay. Sometimes they give him out, they're called queen for a day, uh, which amounts to nothing. It's just uh, people feeling each other's pulses. Okay. Other times it amounts to that's the first step to leading all the way down this road of becoming a government cooperator. And you'd have to start with that first, okay? Now, you had a, pro- a United States attorney that was in the, in Arizona. His name, if I can get it correct, I think is a Charlton. I think his name was Paul K. Charlton, if I'm getting the name correct. And he said the process is so corrupt, it's so scripted. He said, from now on, I'm going to implement the policy, and the policy is going to be that from this point going forward, anytime any individual is going to be interviewed by an FBI agent, okay, in our district, I want recorders in there. I want it recorded. And the reason for that is because as another report that was done by Forbes magazine, I believe in 2001, July, was by Harvey Silvergate. He was a author slash defense attorney and he had done this big story, this report. I think it was 2011. I think it was July 2011. He did this big story basically stating that the process, the 302 process, is so corrupt that it basically at the end of the day amounts to the FBI agent writing a script for the proposed or potential cooperator so that cooperator can follow that script so they can accomplish their objective. Okay? So the whole process that starts this whole thing off leading to a person becoming a cooperator is compromised, it's corrupted. Okay. Now once you get past that, and again, the agent, and I'm not saying this applies to all, but you have those select agents that violate this process. They bend and break the rules, as we had seen, my attorneys and I, in my trials. We had a vengeful, vicious agent named Ted who just came after me with such a viciousness that it's never been seen before. I mean, this guy went to all levels. At, at first, he tried at first, he, he was content, I believe, with just having me convicted. But when he was dealt the, the setback on my first trial, it became vicious. He began putting information out there, negative information regarding myself. Uh, he began going to my, what he believed to be my adversaries in my former life on the street, and saying that John and Charlie, my attorney at that time, Charles Canisi have fought this case too well. Therefore, uh, we're going to subpoena all of you guys and thank John and Charlie for this. So, you're trying to make people pit against, possibly become my, you know, people that were adversaries in my previous existence. And government cooperators had said, verified they were adversaries. For example, Mikey Scars di Leonardo had said that John didn't like these particular two individuals and John conspired to kill them. As well as you had uh, Fat Don Borghese, who was another government cooperator, said, These two individuals didn't like John Gotti, John A. Gotti, and they conspired to kill John. So you know in this information, and then you go to these individuals, these very same individuals, and say, uh, well, look, here's a subpoena, and you can thank John and Charlie for this. Even Judge Shira Shindler went on to say she's never seen anything like this, and this is akin to sickening the attack dogs on Mr. Gotti. Now, why would you do that? Why would you do that, and why would you take a corrupted... uh, 302 process whereas that you had a simple 40-minute meeting material that you knew went absolutely nowhere with me. It was 18 to 31 years old useless material at that time some 13 years ago okay and sit there when you could not win the case, lost the you dealt the setback in the first case which I was acquitted on certain charges and hung up on other charges then you would turn around and say, look, we're going to put this out there and say that John tried to cooperate. While you're trying me, while you're taking me to court all these days, trial after trial, you would put that on a man that's giving you the good fight. You would put a bum wire on a guy like that on a document that you've doctored up, that you've molded it together to accomplish an objective, okay? And he's done it often, okay? You would do these things to try to what? Think he's gonna you're gonna force him to cooperate, or you're gonna force support away from him to convict him, or you just want to play and get him killed. There's no other reason why you would do this. Because you knew cooperation was never gonna happen. I'm never gonna cooperate. It was never gonna happen. He knew that. So what would be your what would be your agenda here, other than bad? To that point, why would you not cooperate? I wouldn't cooperate ever, because I don't have the right to do that to my sons. I can't. While well, my sons are staring at pictures, and every room in my house is a picture of my father, every room in my house. And the, the pictures, the most recent pictures we've had of my father of, in his cell in Marion, Illinois, where he spent the last 10 years of his life in solitary confinement. And you were permitted on Christmas, they'll come to your cell and take a snapshot or two in your cell, and he'd mail that picture home. And we have one on an easel, because it's the last picture we have. Uh, my, my parole officer came to the house and saw that big picture there. He visited and said, well, why would you put a big picture of your father in his you know prison sweatsuit, sweatpants, and thermal underwear shirt on his bunk be a kids to see I said because it's the most recent picture we have of my father A and B this is when he was healthy it's the last picture we have of when my father was healthy and I want his grandkids to see him I want to see him and I also want them to be proud of the man that their grandfather was because I am immensely proud of my father and that being said now to answer the question why I would never be a cooperator because I would never have the right to do that to my sons I wouldn't have that right I made them proud of their name. I've always told them to walk with their heads up. I've always told them, I've I've taught them a certain way, but I didn't teach them so much the way my father had taught me, where my father would turn around and he would say, you know, you never talk to a cop or things of that nature, okay? I didn't ever talk to my kids in that respect. I taught them to be citizens, but I also told them to be loyal to your friends. You'd be a stand-up guy. If you get caught short, then you take your weight, like a man, like you're supposed to, okay? and they're always, always be proud of your grandfather. That man walked it all the way to the gate. That man died with handcuffed to a bed, in excruciating pain, the muscle, the tissue right all around his throat. He died suffering like a dog, and he never said uncle. That's a man. You'll never see another man like him again. Now, what right would I have to now one day go to jail, life got bad for me, life got tricky for me, and say, okay, you got me. I'm going to give you some people. I'm going to throw, I'm going to give i I'm going to put my mess onto somebody else. But you would have been prime meat,
1: just like your father would have been for those feds, right?
0: I would have been walked around more like a circus bear, you know, with a, a collar around my neck and a leash, okay? Because my last case, I was, I, for a short period of time, before I won the motion and was moved back to New York, I was death eligible. So I was facing the death penalty. So they threw everything they can at me to bring me to that point. Whatever they could, they they bring me to that point, including medically neglecting me and leaving me for months that I only have half use of my kidney. They did all the things they were supposed to do to break me down. And it didn't work. And it didn't work because I'm loyal in my love for my children. I would never put, I would never disgrace my sons like that. I would never put my sons in a position where as if they look at their father and say, I want to change my name. What right would I have to do that to them? What right would I have to do because of my sins, because of the things I've done in my life, the wrongs I've done in my
1: life, Put that onto my children and make them walk around in, in pain and disgrace. To me, there are two cases that are seemingly the most important when we discuss the WITSEC Mafia, especially when it relates to you, John. Now, before I get on to the second of these two, I want to ask you what is Sammy the Bull Gravano's involvement in the witness protection process?
0: Well, Sa- Sammy, Sammy Gravano's role in the storytelling aspect of, of, of Whitsek Mafia is it's not that significant, but yet it is significant it's significant for the simple point is that he's become the highest he was the poster boy for government cooperation he was their guy they got him to flip against John Gotti he was the most famous infamous individual of our time and probably of the last 100 years relating to organized crime you've got Sammy Gravano this high-ranking powerful member of this entity to cooperate against John Gotti, this charismatic Teflon Don, who to this point was so successful that repelled every attack against him, he repelled them. And now they says, we finally, checkmate, we got you. We not only have the tapes, but we have Sammy Gravano now. And they wave this prize around. And they achieve 56, over 56 convictions as a result of Sammy Gravano. Now, why do I pro- promote him in Witsek Mafia? I tell you why. Because Sammy Gravano probably received the greatest deal in the history of any government cooperator. I don't know if there's any government cooperator ever got a better deal than Sammy Gravano. Sammy Gravano had admitted to 19 murders, not to mention robberies, assaults, extortions, construction, frauds, and all the other stuff that goes with it, okay? And he was basically, and we've uncovered that he did two other murders that he never admitted to, okay? It wasn't really 19, it was 21 murders,
1: now that's a critical element here. How did you find this
0: out? Well, one was believed to be a murder of a cop and the other one was a, a murder that he was trying to protect his crew. So he didn't want to give the information on, on, on fellows that were very close to him and his crew. Okay, he didn't want to give the information on that. And show you the kind of man that my father was, I uncovered this stuff. Okay, I, I hired the private investigators. I brought this stuff to my father and my father wouldn't let us use it. And you know what he said? This is the kind of man that John Gotti was. He says, if the rat didn't talk about it, we can't talk about it. I says, what are you talking about, That We got him. We caught him dead to, dead to rights here. We can impeach this witness and we can send this guy packing. We can send this rat packing. Yeah, John. But if we open up that can of worms, what about the guys he did not implicate? We're now gonna put them into this. So basically, we're half of rats by doing it. So no. So he sat there in his chair and he accepted his loss. So now, getting back to why Sammy Gravano for this, the deal that Sammy Gravano was given was he was forgiven for 19. It was given absolution for 19 murders that he admitted, numerous crimes. Was allowed to keep millions of dollars in ill-gotten gains. Okay, was taken out of the MCC, which is a uh, federal housing unit, brought to a house in Quantico, Virginia, and he was being housed in a cushy house there uh and thereafter his testimony was when he was done testifying was put in you know cushy with wit- sec units was released after four years did four years in prison he was released okay And what does he do as soon as he's released something he said he was never going to do while he was in the stand of my father's case there were two things he said sammy Gravano was never involved in drugs that's what he said which was a lie because we uncovered while he was in a guy named uh, uh gas pipe castle had admitted this is another high-level cooperator, homicidal maniac. Okay, for the accused, he was uh, uh, aligned with what the government t- uh, calls the Lucchese family. Had implicated Sammy Gravano in one of the largest drug shipment seizures in New York history, which was a boat called the Hunter in Cheapside Bay. So that was his first lie. He said he would never do that, and he said that he's, I would never write a book. I would never write a book. Oh, you can't. You're in the program. You're in a marshal, so you're not know allowed to write books. As soon as he gets released, he writes a book. He writes a book, gets a movie deal, uh, does an interview with Diane Sawyer. And you see he's charismatic, he's presenting his case, he's going back and forth to take his views, and he's marketing his book. But while he's doing that, that's not enough for Sammy Guevara. He ventures off and takes control over this youth, these young kids uh, that fancy themselves as a white supremacist gang. and. Monopolize and takes over their ecstasy business in Arizona. Now, the two things he said on the stand he would never do. He would never write a book, he had written already, and he would never deal, doesn't deal drugs. We knew he dealt drugs, but now he's dealing it now again, okay, and he gets arrested. He gets arrested for a conspiracy to murder, uh, intimidation, witness intimidation, obstruction of justice, uh, and large scale drug dealing business and the shame of it all is, the worst part about it all is the man who said that he would never do that and said the reason why he was cooperating is because he wanted a better life for his family and he didn't want this life for his son. He wanted to show with his son the right way and he didn't want to see other kids make the mistake that he had made in his life. Yet, he got his son indicted right alongside him along with his wife and daughter for narcotics pushing. His son ended up with nine years, okay, for following the father's lead, decided it up at nine years. So now, instead of Sammy Gravano getting life, he gets twenty years, and he gets twenty years only because Arizona's going to give him twenty years, and the federal government wants to save face and say we're going to give him twenty years too. They should have given him life without parole, but instead they've given him only twenty. They had given him only twenty years. So, and he's now released after seventeen years. So he's part of this process because we talked about as all too often. Even the government cooperator in my case, who was a long-term, it was an informant since the 90s, the early 90s, John A. Light. Same thing, same speech, same spiel. Well, I'm doing this because I don't want my sons, and I'm doing this because uh, I don't want other kids, and I don't want to make sure that my life's experiences were in vain. Okay? Same thing. He pulled the script right out of Sammy Gravano's book, right on down to being on the stand and saying that I have no intention of writing a book on the oath, said, I'm not going to write a book, when the whole time we had him on tape writing the book, okay? And the same thing, he followed his lead, only the difference is that Sammy Gravano was a somebody.
1: He was everything that he said he was. What's your message to Sammy the Bull Gravano today, now that he's living his life free and on the streets? Well, he now
0: has a third chance in life. His first chance was, and he blew it, and he got indicted. The government gave him solution and released him from prison. Four years, for all those heinous crimes. That's called a second chance. and be back with your wife and your children and start a life all over again. Opened up a restaurant in Arizona, construction company, built pools I believe for a living, okay, and what'd he do? Kept all his millions from when he was a street guy, and what'd he do? He pissed it all away. He got caught dealing drugs again and corrupting the minds and the morals of young kids, including his own, including his own children. So now he's back out of jail after some 16 and a half years. Now he's got what's called a third chance. What's my message? I don't know what to tell a person like that. You hope the guy has the ability, has some redeemable qualities that can just move on with his life. Focus on your family, focus on the things that are most important instead of focusing on that he wants a quarter of a million dollars to do his first interview.
1: You know, I find that really interesting, John, because considering everything that he represents to your family, if it was me, I couldn't help but be pissed off. I'd be angry. You're not like that. Do you feel somewhat mallowed by your involvement with WITSEC mafia and understanding that he's part of it?
0: No, because I'm a civilian. I'm a civilian. So my perspectives are now that of a civilian, Okay. And I look at things from a completely different perspective I would look at 20 years, 25 years ago. Uh, I look at it now as that, I'm home. I was facing life, I made it through that trial. I was facing life again. When I say life, 110 years in the first trial, 110 years in the second trial, I made it through that one. 110 years on the third trial, I made it through that one. Then I went to a parole and tax trial, I was facing several years which they were looking to just hold me down and wait so they can indict me again. And I made it through that one. And then the last trial, I was facing the death penalty. And when they dropped that charge on me, still I was facing several life sentences, okay? And I'm home, and I'm blessed. I get up in the morning with my children around me, and I don't look at people now with ill will and say, with one exception, but for the most part, I don't look at people with ill will. If you did what you did, you go on with your life. There are many people, there are many individuals that I've studied that, and I'm, we're going to make mention of several in Witsack Mafia, that upon their release from the section program and their release back to their families, they went on with their lives. They went to work. They became good husbands. They became good fathers. In some respects, they coached Little League for their kids' teams. So those are individuals are not under my chopping block. Not on my chopping block. They're not under the axe. Those are individuals that maybe say that that program does work. But I'm putting the light, I'm shining the light on the individuals that have helped corrupt that process. And you have innocent people. When I say innocent, maybe fellow street guys like I was, maybe they were guilty of something else. But crimes were put on them, charges were thrown against them that I know were inaccurate, I know. I know they were fabrications, I know that. I know being who I was, I know they were fabrications. And yet, Government cooperators got away with it. They sold that bill, and then they come home, and now they want to be stars. Now you want to be a star, you want to make a story. Uh, I, I, Sammy Gravano at first had said that he did it because of his kids and other kids and so on and so forth. Then later on he says, well no, I was, bl- not, I didn't really, not that, that really didn't happen. Uh, I did it because uh, you know, uh, John Gotti was gonna dump all the weight on me at trial. Any human being who knows John Gotti Knows his ego was the size of Texas. That man was A, never saying I'm sorry, and B, you can tie him to the back of a truck and drag him across the country. He's never going to say uncle to you, and he's never going to give you any information. That guy is going to sit on his throne and posture the way he postured all the way into his last breath because that's what he felt in his heart. That was number one, that was premier to him. That was primary to my father, was that what he was. So that was a farce. So when you see some of these individuals that take that position, they have a story and excuse. You know, when over the, the, over, there was over 100 government cooperators, over 100, that they sent against me in my trials. And they forgave over 100 murders. Over 100 murders were forgiven. And these people were given an absolution and released into the streets. There was only one government cooperator, that whole lot, that actually sat across and was asked, why are you here? He said, with a lot of pain on his face, wringing his hands and leaning down, and he looked up, said, I don't want to do any more time. He was honest, his name was Frankie Fabiano. He tried to get a 20 year deal, they wouldn't give it to him, and he says, look, that was my number, it broke me. I just didn't want to do any more time. And I went in the courtroom, I went like this. Not to taunt him, I applauded him. You're honest, at least you're being honest. Stop with the lie. Oh, well, well, my bosses testified against me. Where? Who? Uh, John was going to do this. Oh, they were going to kill me. They were going to put me on the show. It's always the same stuff. It's always the same scripted crap over and over again. No honesty. Never honesty. More times than not, it's complete crap. It's not honest. Mm.
1: Frankie had the balls to at least be honest, and I applauded him at the trial. What do you say to people, though, that say that the Witness Protection Program is indeed good for law enforcement because it helps put people, like your own father, away. Those that advocate for the program, it does a lot of good, I guess.
0: I mean, in my research what I've done from its inception uh, over 40 years ago, uh, it's relocated a lot of families. It's helped fight crime. I understand the necessity of it. What I, My problem that I have is the, the, the parts of it that have been corrupted. There's a process that I've explained early on that leads up to this point today that's been completely incorrupted. It's not being used or is not being used as the way Congress wanted, expected it to be used, or the taxpayer, you taxpayer citizens, taxpayer dollars, have and believe in their hearts it's being used. It's being used by some. And again, this is not an indictment of the process. This is not an indictment of Mar- the Marshall Service or an indictment of the FBI because it's really not the Marshall Service. The Marshall Service runs a very tight, stringent program. What happens is the individual has the ability to sign themselves out of that program. They don't want to adhere to the rules of the marshal service. So they sign themselves out of the program. What do they do? They call up their handler, their FBI handler, their law enforcement handler. And that handler, more times than not, well, I can't say more times. In, in, In certain cases, the cases that I've come across my desk that I'm profiling in my book, they facilitated them being released. And they facilitated giving them monthly stipends from the FBI and putting them back right out on the street, relocating to the old community. And they've been facilitating them in the case of at least John A. Light, definitely, facilitating with all former Confederates that were drug dealers, that were involved in other murders, all government cooperators, okay, that live in Freehold, New Jersey and other areas. They put them close together. In fact, in the case of John A. Light, he was living right next door to another government cooperator. Now, his FBI handler had to know this. It had to be a violation of his parole, okay? But yet he's living right next door to another individual who goes by went by the name. Uh, he was Sean Richards was his name. He was the son-in-law to the Cavacanti family. Uh, he was accused of being the boss. Uh, John Riggi. It was his future. It was his, his uh, ex son-in-law who got caught up in construction frauds and a whole host of crimes. Testified against numerous individuals. And he ends up living right next door, he and John A. like together, doing construction jobs together. Okay, that was facilitated by the handlers. Okay, there's no other excuse for it. There's no other way you can explain it. That's where the problem comes in. It's an indictment, not of the process. It's an indictment. It's not an indictment of the marshals. It's not an indictment of the FBI. It's an indictment of certain individuals, certain handlers that feel they almost play the role of God. I forgive you. You can't live next door to me. But you can go back to your old neighborhood again and do whatever you want, okay? I do that. That's the problem. That's where my focus is. My focus in WITSEC Mafia are those very few, those select individuals that have helped facilitate, bend and break all the rules to make their government cooperators comfortable or to keep their secrets that they have with their government cooperators. Because we don't know, again, as we explained early on, What happens in that 302 process, the scripts that are written, what they asked you to do. In the case of John A. Light, in a book that he was part and parcel to, uh, he admits, he says that, quote unquote, that I was pressured basically into tailoring my testimony to fit the testimony of previous individuals that testified against John. Well, that's called called perjury. That's called perjury. That's what it's called in America. So... Who? The question I would ask him today is who told you to perjure yourself? It's a select, narrowed down group. What prosecutor? What FBI
1: agent? Who asked you to perjure yourself? To me, it's somewhat concerning that somebody who committed 19 murders is facilitated back into society. To me, that is frightening. So, what is your goal here? I'm trying to understand what is the psyche here? What is the goal? of Witsec Mafia. Well, my goal
0: is to expose this process, and, a, and a, a large portion of the proceeds are going to several attorneys that are willing to come on behalf of the, the Son of Sam Law to protect victims' rights and basically fight some of these individuals and make them pay, make them accountable for their sins. That's my goal. But my goal, more importantly, is that when you see these individuals being released early from prison, you've got a second shot at life. But rather than go on with your life and tend to your wife and your children's needs and be a, a, a tax paying uh, pillar of the community. You wanna be a star, you wanna go do movies and books, and you wanna threaten people on the internet, and you wanna get involved in crimes, in some cases murders, frauds, and other crimes. Okay, you were just given a deal, you were given. Somebody played God and gave you back your life. And you think you have the right now to abuse that. And what's happening is that again, I'm gonna say this over and over again. Certain handlers, certain individuals, it's not an indictment of the FBI, it's not an indictment of the Marshal Service. Because the Marshal Service, like I said, is is pretty much innocent in this process. But it it comes down to law enforcement and the handlers. Certain select group of them are facilitating these individuals and have knowledge of these individuals breaking the laws, committing crimes, and they're dangerous individuals. You've given people absolution for murders, and they all tell you over and over again, it's still inside me to do it again. In fact, in the case of John A. Light, who for the most part, man on man, was a coward, always a coward. He was a hide in the bush kind of guy. He cried in front of the judge and says, "I only pulled the trigger one time, Your Honor." He cried at his sentencing, and but I had knowledge of three or four of the murders. And she gave him a great deal. She gave him a great deal. They. The US attorney in Florida wanted him to have 17 years. New York, believe it or not, argued to get him down as low as possible. She gave him a 10-year deal, 120 months. He cried, was removed from the court, and then they came back several months later, and resold him one more time, they repackaged him. After we punished him and sent him chasing, they never used him again. He was caught in so many lies in my case, they never used him again, ever. He was retired, this guy, but yet they repackaged it and says, lied to the judge and says, Susan and said, we, got, we achieved four more convictions as a result of the information that John Aylott has given us. Can you take more time off? And she did. She further cut his sentence. He was released out to the public. And here's a guy that now, the speaking engagements, you know what he says? One speaking engagement, uh, I was involved in 15 murders. He did 15 murders. Another speaking engagement, dozens of people. I killed dozens of people. The embellishments get greater and greater and greater and greater because why? Because he was given absolution. The FBI, his handler, his handlers had given him absolution, so now he's emboldened. So now the reality of what you represented to that judge is no longer the reality. The truth now is what you're saying. now. Huh? I'm not a humble guy. I'm not thankful for the second shot of being released uh, because he didn't. He testified against Charles Cornelia. Charles Cornelia was convicted of Four murders, the only murder he was acquitted of was the, was the murder A. Light testified against. He was even convicted of the Lindenburg baby kidnapping, and he wasn't even born. And yet, the, the only one that he wasn't acquitted of, the, only, the one he wasn't guilty of, was John A. Light's, when he testified. My case, the jurors were void dead after the case was over. They all said, the ten that stood around, that stood around all said the reason why... The ones that wanted to convict me said the reason why we couldn't convict them because we didn't believe John A. Light was Star Witness. The ones who did convict me voted to convict me. And Tony Daiudo, who's my attorney, and Charles Canisi, who's my other attorney, interviewed these individuals. And they all said, the ten that stood around to be to answer questions, all had said across the board. The ones who voted guilty and the ones who voted not guilty. Both had said we had a problem. We couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't hold on because of John A. Light. But we did believe in Mikey Scars de Leonardo. We did believe in Dominic Cicali. But A. Light, we did not believe. All 10 that stood there in that room to be did. all said that he was so unbelievable, he was ridiculous, okay? Now you get a shot, you're home, you're released. And rather than going to take care of your children, take care of your family, you're out breaking laws, welfare fraud, construction fraud, terrorizing people on the internet, and trying to market yourself as a motivational speaker when you're abusing, we've had information that was sent to us uh, of abusing his own children, his own son.
1: I mean, it's just, the guy is just, he's, a, hes a horrible excuse of a person. Now, some would say that he was a rat against you and therefore you have an axe to grind and he's a horrible, horrible person. Sammy the Bull, I mean, your father had an axe to grind against him because of what he did in a court of law. But your reaction to Sammy the Bull, to me, seems completely different to that of John A. Light. And if people were to ask
0: me if I have an axe to grind, I do. I do. I don't have an axe to grind with Sammy Gavano. I don't have an axe to grind with the vast majority of individuals. I do have an axe to grind with John A. Light. I do, with that individual. Because he's, he was facilitated by certain individuals and sold a lie. His handler from the 90s, name is Dave Gentile, helped give, he gave him a, provided him with a vehicle to get to certain media personalities to market a story of total untruths. He sat there in lie after lie after lie. Brazilian stories about gladiator fights that we... Now, the media personalities, uh, the person who had written his book, George Anastasia, he could have very easily did what I did. He says in his book that I couldn't check out the stuff that happened in Brazil. Well, I did. It cost me $7,000. I hired a lawyer and a private investigator in Brazil. They found me Hundreds and hundreds of pages of files. They found me the god that punched daylight in the mountain knocked his tooth out when he got loud with him. They found me his cellmate. I found them all, interviewed every one of them. Lie after lie after lie. What a cushy existence he had down there. If you had money in those Brazils, you're ordering Chinese food, movies, you can get prostitutes from the streets that come in. There was no gladiator fights with eight-inch blades he pulled out of his rectum and stabbed the guy 32 times in one of his stories that he told that never appeared in any of his 302s or never appeared at the trial or never appeared in any debriefings with the agents, the many thousands of hours of debriefings that he had given to the agents. It never appears anywhere. All of a sudden, all this fiction appears. And you say to yourself, this is a guy that's A, not remorseful, B, he's manipulative and he's looking for an opportunity. He lied his way to get out of jail, he got a willing agent who was desperate to get a conviction against me because I punished him and destroyed his career, this agent, okay? Spun a tail, helped perjure his testimony, got him out of jail, and yet this is a guy that's not saying, you know what? I got away with it. No, this is a guy that's looking for another opportunity. He's sizing up his mark, that's all he's doing. And the problem is that you, you're watching his handler permit this. Because you've had complaints from civilians, you've had complaints from uh, five-time Emmy Award-winning uh, journalist Peter Peter Lance, who was threatened by this guy. okay? And it was all being ignored. All ignored.
1: All ignored. That was John Gotti Jr. declaring war on loose-lipped rats who weaseled their way into the Witness Protection Program. A fascinating new development and a rather dramatic turn for someone who is now... Proudly living a life free of crime. All right, that's been All Rise Season 1, Episode 8. I'm Dylan Howard. We'll see you next week with an all-new episode from the only podcast with the guts to tell it like it is.